0: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of Fearless with Mark and Amber. This episode, we are going to share our speech that we gave at Lake County Right to Life on the one-year anniversary of abortionist George Klopfer's death. We interviewed him eight months before his death, spent two years investigating this man and looking at his life, and we had a lot to share with everyone at the Lake County Right to Life banquet. Do you believe you're, you're, what, you're, you're, what you're, do you believe that what you what you've done is right? Do you believe it in your I, heart in I, the heart? Yes, I gave the, the women I gave
1: I gave the women the choice to make a I to understand. make the choice whether to choose to have an abortion or whether to have the child. Okay? Whether it's the right choice or the wrong choice. Have you
0: asked for forgiveness for for killing children? Have you asked for forgiveness no, for killing I for I didn't a sin? Kill children.
1: You you don't No. Your your conception and my conception when life begins
2: is different.
0: You know that in the womb and in the mother's body that it's a baby.
2: No, it's a fetus. Well, good evening, everyone. It's really an honor for us to be here. We are so appreciative of it. My name is Mark Archer. This is my wife and producing partner, Amber. Um, What you just heard is the opening scene to the film that we gave two years of our lives to producing, tells the story of how abortionist George Klopfer was eventually shut down. And you could say that we have a unique uh, perspective on George Klopfer and who he was because, as you heard, we're the only ones that ever got in and interviewed him in person. And that really became the backbone of how we were to tell this unfolding story called Inwood Drive. Uh, we called it Inwood Drive because his clinic in Allen County, more specifically in Fort Wayne, was located on a city street called Inwood Drive. And that's really where the beginnings of the unraveling of George Clopper's empire of death really began. And that's really why we're here tonight, is because that story is one that we felt led to preserve so that generations to come will know how this was done because George Clapper was shut down not because of the Supreme Court. It wasn't because of who was in the Oval Office. He was shut down because of people just like you and by elected officials at the county level. So make no mistake, elections have consequences. George Clopper was shut down because of the efforts of pro-life warriors just like you at every level and every sphere of influence.
0: It really is an honor for us to be here with you guys tonight. And- I just want to say hello to your online audience. We have friends back in Fort Wayne who are also watching, joining us. Um, in 2017, Mark and I took a leap of faith, and we took our 30-plus years of production experience and started a ministry, a filmmaking ministry called Fearless Features We felt the Lord calling us to share the gospel and share stories of life, loss, and redemption through Jesus Christ. Because what this world needs is a whole lot more Jesus and a lot less garbage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So our first Fearless episode was on a woman named Kathy Humbarger. Does anyone in the room know the name Kathy Humbarger? I see quite a few. (laughs) So Kathy, if you're watching, we all love you. So Kathy is a tireless, pro-life warrior. She is also the executive director at Right to Life Northeast Indiana in Fort Wayne, where we reside. And I remember a few short months after we produced Kathy's story, and it was her own testimony. It had nothing to do with Klopfer or anything else. She just has a wonderful, God-honoring story of coming to Jesus. But I remember after producing her film, I came across an article, and this was in May of 2018. And it was a Life News article that said that Fort Wayne, Indiana was the second largest abortion desert in the United States. Now I was intrigued and I wanted to know how that happened. So of course we had to go to the source. And we went to ask Kathy, how did this happen? Could this be replicated, and is it a story worth telling? Because for us, we like to tell, give solutions to the problems. And a couple months went by, and Kathy agreed it would be a story worth telling. And what she likes to call it is Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts, But little did we know uh, how the Lord would actually be working out the details along the way. Even tonight, as Lynn mentioned earlier, marks the one year anniversary of George Klopfer's death. And I believe it's no coincidence that we're here tonight to talk to you about the importance of getting involved and how everyday people just like yourselves shut this man down from harming women and taking the lives of countless children.
2: So what is the story of Inwood Drive, you ask? Well, it's really a pretty fascinating one. The question we asked at the beginning, of course, was how did this happen? As Amber said, how did Fort Wayne become the second largest abortion desert in the United States? You see, when you make movies, you're really just telling stories. And a great story starts with a great question and the great question was that question that amber first asked how did this happen it happened because of people just like you the people in this room you are the pro-life heroes who participated in this some of you just didn't know and our story just happens to focus on where where we live in fort wayne but it's all the same story You see, George Klopfer had been doing abortions since about 1974. And he had come to Fort Wayne as an itinerant abortionist. We figure in about the mid-1980s. He had been plying his trade at the original clinic in downtown Fort Wayne. He eventually took over that practice as he also took over the practice in South Bend and just up the road here in Gary, and basically ruled the roost in northern Indiana. George Klopper then tried to escape those pro-life people from the clinic that he had in downtown Fort Wayne. You see, the pro-life community had leased the building directly next door to his downtown clinic, and he was starting to lose a lot of business. He also couldn't get away from those pesky sidewalk counselors. So he moved his clinic in 2006 from downtown out into the suburbs into a building sitting on a city side street called Inwood Drive. And that was really where our story began. Really the reason it caught our attention is because many years ago, before we had gotten involved in any kind of pro-life work, we had gone one day to visit and talk with the pro-life warriors. We wanted to talk to the prayer warriors and the sidewalk counselors right there on Inwood Drive. And we went on a procedure day And what struck us about this imagery was that on one side of Inwood Drive was George Klopfer's abortion clinic. And directly across the street on Inwood Drive was Statewood Baptist Church. And we were struck by the imagery of good versus evil, separated by only a couple dozen feet, that city street called Inwood Drive. And what we had learned about what had happened to George was George had started leaving a lot of messes, and if you'll extend me a little grace here tonight, I don't know how else to say it except just to say it. George had one job, and he couldn't even do that right. You see, George was an abortionist, yes, but he was a sloppy abortionist. So George had started to leave quite a wake of destruction with botched abortions, Incomplete abortions. And that started to catch the attention of a young OBGYN who was fairly new to the Fort Wayne area. And his name was Dr. Jeff Cly. And Dr. Cly started noticing this pattern of women coming in who were seriously, seriously injured, who had incomplete abortions, who had to have emergency operations. In fact, one girl who was only 20 was so seriously maimed by Klopper that she had to have an emergency hysterectomy. And now she will never have children. So Dr. Cly got frustrated. Well, he didn't even really know until that point that there was an abortion clinic in Fort Wayne. And so when he found out that this was happening, he started poking around. And he asked, why can't we do something about this? that eventually led him to placing a cold call to Kathy Humberger at Allen County Right to Life and he said to Kathy, why aren't you pro-life people doing something about this? This man is butchering women. To which Kathy very politely responded, Dr. Cly, we've been waiting for you to call. And that began the process of drafting legislation to hold abortionists accountable. By requiring them to have admitting privileges at hospitals. Well, politics came into play as they usually do, and those efforts were defeated at the State House. But Indiana is what's called a home rule state. And in layman's terms, that means that individual counties can pass their own legislation on things relating to business, or in this case, health care regulation. As long as it doesn't conflict with existing state law. Well, as you remember, it didn't exist at the state level because it was defeated. And so in Allen County, the patient safety ordinance was introduced requiring itinerant physicians, including abortionists, to have admitting privileges or a backup physician in the county who did have admitting privileges. Now... Klopfer and his ilk were not about to let this go down without a fight. In fact, all Klopfer had to do was basically nothing. Then claimed that he couldn't find anybody in this pro-life county, and therefore it's unconstitutional and it should be thrown out. And when the ACLU and the Center for Reproductive Rights, who represented him in court... Filed for an injunction, that's exactly what they claimed. But here's where it gets interesting. The twist came when the cannonball that they didn't expect came back, and that was Dr. Jeff Cly. It was Dr. Jeff Cly who started this ball rolling, ended up having to step up himself and be the backup for George Klopfer. And it was a very controversial move. But you see, what people didn't understand at the time is that if he hadn't done that, then they would have lost all of that legislation. And George would have gone on unchecked completely. But you see, what had been done is that they had laid the framework for pulling the rug out from under George Klopfer when the time was right. And so several years then went by, and pro-life individuals just like you in this room started really turning up the heat and scrutinizing line by line things like termination of pregnancy reports, any bit of paperwork they could find on George Clopper, and every month they would file stacks and stacks and stacks of errors and omissions complaints. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the death by a thousand paper cuts. And it kept piling up and piling up and piling up this case against George Klopfer. Then it happened. It happened here in Lake County. And then it happened in St. Joe County. And it happened in Allen County. Through that scrutinization of those termination of pregnancy reports, it was found that George Klopfer had been performing abortions on girls as young as 13 and not reporting it to Child Protective Services. That's illegal. And that is where things started to come unraveled for George Klopfer. Because, you see, this controversial move that Jeff Cly had made to act as George's backup position. And incidentally, that did not mean that Jeff Cly was doing abortions for him on the weekend. All it meant was that he was the one that would get the call so that he could document what had happened. And that those people that had criticized Jeff Cly for that move now saw what was about to happen because now Jeff had a legitimate reason to withdraw that backup status. And once he did, George Klopfer was no longer allowed to practice in Allen County. The rug had been pulled out from under Klopfer and he did it to himself. And so on December 31st, 2013, George Klopfer was out of business in Allen County. Well, it very quickly cascaded after that, and George found himself under investigation. His clinics were raided, and he found himself then with his license suspended because he had also done this in St. Joe County and right here in Lake County. And the interesting thing is that when we interviewed George, he told us this story about when he was first doing abortions in the early 70s. And there was this 12-year-old girl that had come in. She was brought in by her parents. And this 12-year-old girl had been raped by her uncle. And George performed the abortion in the hospital. She was 21 weeks pregnant. And he said over and over what made him mad was the fact that the parents of the girl would not prosecute the uncle for raping their daughter. And he over and over and over talked about how angry that made him. And it wasn't right and it wasn't fair. But now here we are decades later. And here's George Clopper in the exact same position where he has not only a right but a duty and an obligation to report these situations but he doesn't, why? Because now he says that's a family affair. And so George Klopfer sent these young girls, three that we know of, right back into those same sexual abuse situations. And that is what started unraveling things finally for George Klopfer. Now I do have to give him credit. Because in 40 years of being a very high-profile abortion doctor, George had successfully avoided most media attention. And that takes some level of talent. We couldn't really find any examples of him giving any kind of interviews. There were articles and reports made about him, but he never really cooperated with them. So we honestly didn't think that our chances were very good At getting him to talk to us. But when you're going to tell a truthful story, you have to try. And so we knew we had to try, and we had to try to reach out to George, and reach out we did. And one afternoon, that situation manifested itself.
0: Yes, one afternoon... I came home from running errands with our two-month-old daughter because we actually started this film two weeks before I gave birth to our third little girl. (laughs) So Mark looks at me and he says, hey, guess what we get to do? Now, friends, I have to tell you, after 15 years together, (laughs) I am quick to listen and slow to speak. (laughs) So he says, I just got off the phone with George Klopfer, and we're gonna go interview him next week. My first response was great. That man needs Jesus. So we prepared ourselves and we prayed, and it was not a popular notion with a lot of people in our small circle. But I couldn't help but think of what Jesus says in scripture. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. George Klopfer most certainly was a sinner in need of a savior. So finally the morning came and we took our two, or we took our, our one littlest one over to Grandma and Grandpa's while the other two were in school. We drove to a local coffee shop. We got three coffees, one for myself one for Mark and one for George. We knew that each week he met with a man who had a ministry with him. So we decided we were going to go peace offering. Neither of us had ever been into an abortion clinic. It was an eerie, dark, and cold place. Here we were walking into a place where thousands of lives had been taken out of convenience, out of fear, or they were forced. And here we were going to speak to the man who had taken countless innocent lives. Let me tell you, friends, the man that we met that morning, he was a sad, broken, and lonely man. You could tell that George desperately wanted someone to talk to and someone to listen to him. And so we went in and we sat down. He wouldn't let us bring a camera in, but we asked him if we could record. And he said, sure. We asked him if we could use it in the film. He said, of course. And that's exactly what we did. We pressed record and let him speak. He was so ready for someone to listen to his life story, and we got it all. Now, we had heard this story about George that we thought was just a rumor, an urban legend, if you will, about him surviving the firebombs in Dresden and coming from Germany, and that his motivation was, for, it was taking revenge on Americans by killing Ameri- American babies, for what had happened in Nazi Germany. And to be honest, we didn't really believe it. Uh, There were several sidewalk counselors who would recount these stories to us, and he would tell the same one over and over again. But see, when you're an investigative filmmaker, you have to document things, and you have to verify, verify, verify. And we weren't interested in making message movies, we were interested in telling a truthful story. And so we went to George Klopfer to verify. And within three minutes of our conversation, he started telling us this story, and it's gonna be for you on the screens.
1: Let me put it this way. In 1945, I was with my aunt in the suburbs of Dresden. February of 1945, in between the Americans and the English, they firebombed Dresden Mm. for three days and two nights. Mm. Uh, The death toll varies depending upon who you want to believe. Mm. The Allies say it was forty to 50,000. The Germans said somewhere about 100,000. Uh, The German government at that time said it was 150,000. Americans, POWs, who were in trains at the train station, got killed by the bombing. Mm. Uh, And the women's church, Frauenkirche in German, which was destructed by the bombing, and the East German government would not allow it to be rebuilt because as a memento of the horrendous thing that happened. After the Berlin Wall fell down and Germany reunited, in 1994, they decided to rebuild the woman's church. And when they did that in the basement, they found dead bodies from World War II. Okay. In uh, 1945, 46, 47, when the Russians were where we lived at that time, the Russian soldiers were driving through the fields with the AK-47s, shooting at anything and everything with no disregard for anybody. Uh, the house across the street from us was destroyed in the bombing, not in the duration bombing, another the bombing. And most of that family got killed, so uh the effects of the war probably may have not had a positive inspect yeah. on my perception, mm-hmm. okay, but uh on your perception of of what of human beings what they do to each other?
2: I'm just gonna let that sink in for a second. Think about the irony of what he just said. The man who spent his life murdering children and being concerned about human beings and what they do to each other. So I want you to remove yourself for just a moment from who George Klopfer was at the end, the man that we all knew And think about that story that you heard and ask yourself the question, who was George Klopfer? See, George wasn't born a monster. He was born a sinner, like all of us. But George was born a little boy. He was a child, just like all of us were. Imagine yourself at five years old, and living through the firebombing of your own city for three days, three nights. Destruction everywhere, everything burned to the ground, everything that you have known, gone. And then for the next six years, George and his family not only lived through the remains of the fallen Third Reich, but then got to live through Stalin and his regime invading. So who was George Klopp for, really? Well, George was one of seven children. George's father really seems to have had an enormous impact on George and what George eventually chose as his field of study. George's father's name was Oscar. And Oscar was a chemical engineer. Oscar Klopfer worked for a company in Dresden called IG Farben Industries. And IG Farben was a chemical engineering and manufacturing company. And they held patents on some interesting products. Sarin nerve gas for one. Tabin nerve gas for another. IG Farben also manufactured the nerve gases used in the execution chambers at the Nazi concentration camps. Now, we don't know for certain that Oscar was a part of that effort, but Oscar did hold several patents for his years at IG Farben Industries. So when George was 11, he came to America with his family, and they had escaped from Germany through a secret U.S. intelligence agency program known as Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip was a program set up by the U.S. government to bring former Nazi scientists from Germany to the United States to work on Department of Defense projects. Oscar was brought to the U.S. with his family to work for a company in Detroit called the Copolymer Corporation. Their relocation was sponsored and paid for by the United States Army. And he was brought here to work on synthetic rubber compounds for military applications. So at the age of 11, George moved to America and George grew up in the US in the 50s. He graduated high school from Bellevue High School just outside of Detroit in 1959. And George, by all accounts, was a top student. George was also an outstanding athlete. He broke multiple track and field records at his school. George had a very promising life ahead of him. In fact, in his high school yearbook, which we have, it even says that George aspired to represent the United States in the Olympic Games. After high school, George went to college at the University of Michigan and Wayne State University, graduated at the top of his class and eventually went into medical school in Chicago. And then 1973 happened. And suddenly abortion was legal in the United States and a young physician, George Klopfer, saw easy money. And that is really where George's reign of death began because George saw that not many doctors were willing to do it, but he was. And it gave him two things that he desperately wanted. Power and influence. George Clopper started doing abortions in 1974. He then started working not only in Chicago, but he started working here in Gary. Then he started working in South Bend. And by the mid 80s, he had worked his way to being an itinerant uh, abortionist in Fort Wayne. And by his own account, George performed at least 30,000, maybe as high as 50,000 abortions in his career. So in August of 2019, when we finished the original cut of Inwood Drive, we held an executive screening for our supporters one night. And that man that had a regular one-on-one ministry to George came to that screening. And he had met with George that very morning and told George that he was going to see the film. So George knew that the film was done. And this man said that when he told George he was going to watch the movie that night, George's attitude suddenly changed. And instead of the usual handshake, and we'll see you again next week, George just turned and walked away. And that was the last time that that man would ever talk to George Because just a week later, we would all get the news that George Klopfer had died.
0: So, George Klopfer died one year ago today, September 3rd, 2019. Ten days after his death, the world would learn of the secret that George Klopfer kept a horrific discovery of 2,246 medically preserved fetal remains were found in George Klopfer's garage among his hoard. And I'd like to pause here for a moment, and we were asked if we could compare Kermit Gosnell and George Klopfer. What I can say about Kermit Gosnell and George Klopfer is that they were both abortionists, they both kept babies, they also both had a severe hoarding disorder. And after, after the initial discovery of George Klopfer, or I'm sorry, the initial discovery at George Klopfer's Illinois home, we received a phone call a few weeks later that another 165 were found at a storage facility in the trunk of one of Klopfer's dilapidated cars in Illinois. And this brought the total of babies he kept, some nearly two decades, to 2,411. And I'd like to again recognize Attorney General Curtis Hill, who we had the privilege of working with while making our film. And Attorney General Hill was doing what only he could do in the position that he had. He brought the 2,411 babies back home to Indiana. And if I could quote him from the film, so that they could receive a proper burial that should be afforded to every human being. Each of the 2,411 was a life.
2: The biggest question that was asked of us over and over again was, why? Why do you think he did this? Why, why, why? And when we thought about it, it's not that difficult, really, to understand. You see, George had three diseases. He had a physical disease. He had a mental disease and he had a spiritual disease. As far as his physical disease, we don't know what it was, but it eventually killed him. George had a mental disease. George was a hoarder who also happened to be an abortionist. And so that gave him access to things like fetal remains, And so I believe that in his mind, he believed that those babies were someone else's trash that he could do with as he pleased. He had been paid to dispose of these children. What's the difference? You threw them away, I'm going to pick it up. The other thing that we notice that really fits the pattern of a classic hoarder is that hoarders almost always have some kind of traumatic life event that triggers this need to collect things, to surround themselves and build up walls. Well, as you remember, that trauma started for George at age five, maybe earlier. You could say that the gospel according to George Klopfer went like this. In the beginning, the Americans bombed my home. And literally everything else in his life was viewed through that filter. George also told us that he was physically and mentally abused by his father and by his mother and by his siblings. So it appears that trauma ruled George Klopfer's life. And so it wasn't a surprise to us, really, that knowing that he was a hoarder, that these are the kinds of things that he would hoard. But let's not forget that the third disease that George had was a spiritual one. And that spiritual disease was a rejection of Christ. And it wasn't that George was an atheist. In fact, George believed in God. He believed in heaven. He believed in hell. And he believed he was going to heaven and that he and Uncle Adolf, Mussolini, and Stalin would all have a beer and a cigar together and laugh about all the things that they had done in this life. No, George wasn't an atheist. He believed in God. He just didn't believe he needed forgiveness for anything. And as you heard in the clip at the beginning, the thing that Amber challenged him on was, have you asked for forgiveness for what you've done? Have you asked for forgiveness for killing children? But George didn't think that he had done anything wrong. Now that's not to excuse him at all, because we know that biblically we are all without excuse. And deep down, I believe George knew that what he had done was wrong, but the spiritual disease that George had was an unrepentant heart. George was a man who was defiant, who was unrepentant, and who shook his fist to the sky at God and said, I don't need you to forgive me. And that was George Klopfer.
0: So why are we all here tonight? We are all here because we care. Mark and I are here because like you, we care deeply about the next generation and giving voice to the voiceless we are just two people who decided to get involved in an effort to try to make a difference. Little did we know that the Lord would have us on a journey documenting and sharing one of the largest mass graves in the United States. 2,411 lives lost in the name of choice. And that number is just about the daily average in America. 22% of all pregnancies in the U.S., end an abortion. The time has never been greater to get involved or support those who are already fighting this battle. Only you know the time that you can volunteer. Only you know the talents that you can share. And only you know the treasure that you can give. Let us honor the 2,411 and countless other boys and girls by giving our best tonight in support of Lake County Right to Life as they continue to stand on the front lines in defense of the unborn and their mothers. Thank you all very much. Have a blessed night. Thanks, everybody, for listening and joining us for this special edition of Fearless with Mark and Amber. We will talk to you soon.